This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Nicholas Shalon, the Air Force's former Chief Software Officer. Nick is a serial entrepreneur and a senior C-level executive with over 22 years of domestic and international experience with strong technical and subject matter expertise in innovation, cybersecurity, software development, governance, risk management, and compliance. Um, Nick was also recognized as one of the France's youngest uh, founding co- founding a company, WorldCat, at, at the age of 15. So first off, Nick, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So Nick, what a challenging time for all of us with the winding down of the pandemic, the ransoming of major systems across the world, um, you know, all kinds of issues with, uh, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, foreign nations and, and technology. This is impacting everyone. Um, how can technology be used to help leaders in these times of crisis? Well, really technology is what's going to be able to automate all of the things we're uh, often wasting a lot of time on. And uh, quite honestly, whether it comes to weapon systems or management of uh, non-weapon capabilities, you're going to see software as the differentiator between innovation or just getting behind. And uh, whether it's uh, through artificial intelligence or data science, uh, or cybersecurity, uh, you're going to see drastic impacts to our day-to-day lives uh, if we fail at uh, doing uh, these things proactively. So we don't have a choice but to uh, rapidly invest in uh, innovation, uh, software, um, making sure that we move at the pace of relevance, and particularly uh, keep up with China. So, um, you know, you, you, you talk about this being stressful times and, and the need to, for rapid innovation. Um, so what kind of leadership qualities really need to be seen to, to, to embrace that kind of strategy? Well, obviously, it's always great to have leaders that understand beyond just the buzzwords of the technology um, capabilities. And um, at the same time, we need leaders that are going to have a sense of urgency and really not just talk the talk, but uh, walk the talk. And uh, at the end of the day, we're running out of time and we need to take action now. Uh, China is not waiting for us to figure this out. And, and so we need leaders that are going to lead and are going to empower our talent and invest in our people at the lowest level and let them lead the way and not get in the way and, and make things happen. So let's take a step back for a minute, because you know you, you you clearly have a ton of passion around this. You have 22 years of experience, both domestic and international. Your subject expertise, um, you know, and, and renowned uh, worldwide. What made you at uh, this start phase of your life towards uh, public service? What what made you decide to to go support the U.S. government in this effort? So initially, this started uh, five years ago when uh, you know the Paris attacks happened and there was a lot of terrorist activity. Um, and I had sold my eleventh company, and I really wanted to make a difference. And I guess you know there is nothing more important 
than uh, preventing people from uh, getting hurt. And so I started DHS, you know, I was the chief architect and special advisor for cybersecurity, uh, pushed Zero Trust and all the best uh, practices to DHS, which also is in charge of all the critical infrastructure, you know, water power and so on, which is so essential to our, our way of life. We, we have uh, tremendous risk right now in that uh, sector, as you've seen even uh, recently in the news. Um, and yet, you know, we don't see a lot of action going on. Um, so that pushed me to to serve, and then you know I got a I got engaged with the Department of Defense, trying to bring you know uh, software innovation and DevSecOps to DoD, and with the success of what we built and and the uh, the ability to start delivering value rapidly to the warfighter, um, you know the Air Force and Dr. Roper at the time decided to create the Chief Software Office and and put me as the first uh, Chief Software Officer. Um, and really the goal is to make sure that our kids have a fighting chance to win against uh, China and Russia, you know, 15 to 20 years from now. So let's take a, you know, a look at what that role is. Tell us about the role of the chief software officer. What does a chief software officer do? And um, what, what is the day in the life of the chief software officer in, in the role that your former role? Yeah, so it's a new concept, right? I wasn't too much of a fan at first because this is not something that really exists on the commercial side. But I think for once, the, the government was leading uh, and uh, came up with a pretty interesting model, which is really this role of enabler of adoption of software innovation and security and, and supply chain risk. And, and so it's, it's a very broad role, you know, tying back to the CIO and CTO and, and CDO with chief data officer, right? And, and trying to um, remove impediments and build enterprise services to facilitate the adoption of agile and DevSecOps and cloud and, and really um, build enterprise capabilities so, so that each team does not have to build these capabilities in vacuums. And, and really when it comes to all these innov software innovation, the velocity of software and the, the, the ability to continuously de deliver small incremental uh, change to software rapidly over the air, like a Tesla does you know, multiple uh, times every two weeks. Um, that's the kind of, of concept we need to embrace if we want to keep up with the pace of relevance. And so the, the day of a CSO was kind of a mix between helping the critical programs within the department, um, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, jets, bombers, space systems. So I was both Air Force and Space Force, uh, but I was also the, the co-lead of the DevSecOps initiative in DoD. So I was also helping the rest of the department move to DevSecOps. I was helping you know, uh, many of the NATO uh, partners adopt DevSecOps. We have five nations now using some of the capabilities we built, uh, 12 agencies outside of DOD. Uh, we open source a lot of the work we were doing. So we got dozens of organizations on the commercial side also partnering and consuming all of the work we open source, which was, by the way, the, the largest contribution to open source, I believe, from the US government. Um, and so it was also engaging with uh, companies and startups to uh, remove impediments for them to do business with DoD and accelerate the accreditation of their software so it can be used not just on the unclassified side, but on the classified side of, of DoD as well. So streamlining the adoption of, of new companies and investing in the right um, uh, grants with, with companies so we can get better capabilities for the warfighter and getting people excited about the mission so we have more diversity of options and less locked into a, a few um, 
traditional duty um, companies that effectively are part of the duty bubble. Uh, so that was kind of the a pretty broad and, and, and very uh, time-consuming uh, role for, for the last uh, uh, three years of my life. You know, I, uh, I'm going to age myself here, but uh, I started uh, supporting the federal government through technology companies uh, during the startup days of Oracle in the mid-80s. And one of the things that I found in supporting, especially the Department of Defense and Intelligence community at that time, the government, the U.S. government, really had a much bigger hand in the clock speed of technology because they had bigger investments than maybe private sector did. Mm -hmm. But today, what you see is that that has that table really has turned that private sector really owns the R&D and the very fast clock speed of what technologies that could be leveraged to help that warfighter. Um, do you see that um, from your role? And, and do you think there's a way that we could change that? There's definitely a way to change it, and I certainly see it. And I think uh, even worse than that, you know, we keep saying we spend more money, we outspend all these nations. You can combine a bunch of nations to equate our our funding, but at the same time, what people fail to realize is that I would argue because of the waste of taxpayer money we see, we probably get ten cent on the dollar of return on investment. So what a company would end up paying, you know. 10 cents, we pay a dollar, right? So I don't know if really we spend more money. I think uh, effectively, if you add to that, the silos and egos getting in the way of common sense uh, within the department where you have Army, Navy, Air Force, um, uh, often uh, not partnering to get to joint outcomes. Um, and you see the Army, you know, refusing to partner in, in cloud adoption and DevSecOps and rebuilding things in vacuums despite uh, the tech stack being exactly the same, you end up, you know, really seeing a lot of uh, waste of taxpayer money for the wrong reasons, uh, with very little um, to justify it, and and so that compounds, and then you add to it the lack of velocity and urgency of delivery of capabilities and lack of agile training. Effectively, the 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 most of the workforce is still uh, mandated to learn waterfall. Uh, with zero mandated training on Agile, uh, which I helped create that, that training, um, but, but it was never mandated as the new way to business. What we see is, you know, these five-year cycles that are completely irrelevant and uh, compounding the waste of taxpayer money because now you're delivering capability that don't even make sense by the time you deliver it. So small, short, incremental delivery of value is the only way to deliver software in 2021. And we failed to do that in most of the largest programs to the point where sometimes uh, when you see very large bids, we completely depend on some of the uh, prime prime uh, contractors. Um, you, you've seen the um, GBSD program, which is replacing all the nuclear silos on the ground, which is essential for our deterrence. You see uh, that contract at, at only a single bidder. And that puts the government and the taxpayer in a very tough, tough spot to, to negotiate. I'm speaking with Nicholas Chalon, former Chief Software Officer of the U.S. Air Force. After the break, we'll discuss leadership needs for true innovation and technology adoption and why Nick dropped the mic. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black.
Welcome back to Leaders in Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm speaking with Nicholas Shalon, the Air Force's former Chief's Software Officer. Nick, you know, you learned some, some of the most valuable things you have learned in your last role, but what is the difference between a leader in Silicon Valley versus the leaders in, in the Pentagon? You, you mentioned personalities in the last segment and some of the difficulty in rolling out some of these large, very critical procurements when just one bidder it ends up coming to the table. Uh, tell me, what's the difference? Why, why, why isn't that innovation and that clock speed that we talked about before still alive there? Well, I think really at the end of the day, what hurts the DOD is the DOD bubble, right? The, the clearance process, the inability to bring people from the outside. I'm, I'm a miracle uh, in terms of being able to even get into the building. Um, you know, um, this was very difficult, uh, not just because of my French accent. Um, and, and I can tell you, most people would not want to go through what I went through. Um, uh, to, to, to serve the, 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 the nation. So, um, what you see is effectively people that are spending their entire life, whether it's, you know, working for the department and leaving work for some of the defense industrial based companies and then coming back into the department, all they know is the DOD pace. They do not know uh, how the rest of the world is operating. And, you know, even when they do think they know they don't, uh, they see anecdotal uh, evidence but you know, you would send some of these people a month at SpaceX, their head would explode. Um, they would be excited. I, I do believe you know it's a lack of training and 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 uh, and lack of access to information uh, regarding that that kind of urgency and how to do business, how to be agile. Uh, you know, Elon Musk could really go and spend uh, you know a month at DoD and 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 wake them up, right? But um, it, it's obviously a massive issue when it comes to uh, understanding the complexity of technology, the ag agile mindset where today, um, and, and look, so some of it also has to do with Congress still, you know, pushing this, you know, two to three year uh, funding process where you're supposed to know three years ahead or more what you're going to be doing, where that's completely ridiculous. Um, look at the technology landscape and look at your phone three, five years ago and, and all the improvements you see. And then you want to, you want weapon systems to move at that kind of pace. That just makes no sense. And so Congress also has to wake up. But again, um, we see the same issue in Congress, right? Uh, that's what you get when you have no term limits and you see uh, these congressmen and women uh, completely stuck in time uh, with no ability to actually do actual work and deliver, deliver tangible value. So that's where we need to wake up. We need to uh, first uh, raise the awareness, raise the urgency. I think until it becomes um, something tangible to them, to their daily lives, most of these people are not going to be uh, paying attention to it, unfortunately. And so it, unfortunately, then it's going to be too late to fix it. And so um, that's why I decided to, to, to leave and, and really raise the awareness because we are, we are out of time and we do not have the luxury of time anymore. You know, I'm very grateful to all the men and women that are in our military services. My father is a retired two-star general. And, um, but you, you, you brought up something that I find very near and dear to my heart. And, and that's the, some, what people who may have the greatest intentions to get something done, but the pace around them or the rules around them don't effectively encourage or allow really even the ability to be able to act in that manner. Um, you know, 
it, do you have any suggestions for in, in that area? Like, is there, is there a way that we can have um, maybe some external exchange? I, I know that there's plenty of companies right now that offer that where we'll take um, you know, somebody who has, uh, you know, a, we had a captain in the Navy that spent a year with us at Google, for an example, to learn a little bit about the workings of Google and then return to the Pentagon. Uh, do you think these should be encouraged more? Because you know, there is something to be said to be a professional and understand, you know, the government side of things. But how do we mix that up so that we can infuse some of the technology um, uh, goodness back in there? Well, you know, this exchange concept was small, but it was half-baked because we send people see the light and then they come back and want to implement it and get even more frustrated and end up leaving to uh, work for you guys. <laughs> so, you know, this is just uh, not good enough. Uh, if we're not going to listen to them when they come back to, uh, you know, implement the changes this, they saw, there is no point in sending them to begin with. Um, so there's that to fix. But honestly, when you look at the, the Department of Defense, uh, there is not much that's going right. You look at acquisition processes, you look at contracting, um, everything requires a complete overhaul uh, of, of, of the entire process. We, we still buy using waterfall mechanisms. We do not understand agile. We don't, do not understand capacity of work. We do not understand basic agile principles. We do not understand IP and how to uh, intellectual property and how to invest and um, make sure we have access to the right IP. Um, even basic contract clauses are not well uh, drafted. Um, you know, the entire uh, bidding process is broken. We do not understand how to cut work into smaller pieces so we can have more bidders. Uh, back to the GBAC example where you have a single bidder only because it's such a massive lift that um, there is no one, no one else to uh, uh, compete when we could have cut the work into pieces and have the government as the integration function. Um, so even that is not well understood. A lot of people believe the government is getting in a way where our role will be to make sure we have the right architects of the technology and of you know how we spend uh, taxpayer money uh, out there. And uh, you know it's been a it's been uh, disappointing to see. Um, all these new contracts continue to be led with uh, this same principle of a large prime uh, that's going to completely control the entire delivery of the process in a waterfall fashion. We're ready. We could have uh, cut this work and make it uh, modular and flexible, give us diversity of, of options when it comes to software and different capabilities. And that's been, uh, you know, quite honestly, uh, a big loss, which which compounds to more waste, um, and also you know the, the lack of investment in our people and training, and the lack of ability to bring people in and the clearance process and uh, the pay gaps and no career tracks for uh, software people that get a single title, no progression of pay unless you want to become a manager. You don't see that on the commercial side. You see distinguished engineers. You see all these. Um, all this progression of pay and title, you see the same issues in cyber, you see the same issue in data science. When you compound it, there's not much that's going right. So someone has to stand up and be uh, willing to completely redesign the entire way we do business. Is, you know, is there something that you wish you knew before you got started or if the next chief software officer, any advice you would have to them so that they can you know, 
have a, a greater opportunity to have an impact? Well, I, certainly I wish I knew more about DOD before starting. I was kind of dropped in the job with very little background of the military and how this works. So I spent a lot of time, you know, and I made a lot of mistakes and burned bridges because I just could not even relate to some of the things I was hearing, uh, mostly because, you know, it's a completely different universe. You come from a startup, you know, uh, in 12 countries with, you know, 450 people and you, um, that you founded, and then you go to, um, you know, to, to a massive organization with um, people talking about things that they don't understand and yet they're leading it. You know, we put people and they are great people, right? And it's been the greatest honor of my life to, 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 serve, to serve them, right? They, I was working for the war fighter. They were my uh, constituents. Um, and, and we have a lot of amazing people. No one is as this malicious intent, right? They just don't know what they don't know. But it's, it's frustrating to see because, you know, they want to do the right things. Um, sometimes there's a middle frozen middle that's, that's blocking them to, to, to achieve it. But even without that, uh, the, the system is so broken that, that you, you just, you, you see pockets of, of innovation and, and quick wins, you know, with, with Casa Run and Platform One and Cloud One and all these teams. But then, you know, it doesn't scale. It doesn't become the norm. Uh, we don't, we don't um, make that the way to do business and, and yet we, 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 we keep waiting for Congress to tell us what to do in the next NDAA. We're already at the end of the day, if we were good leaders, we will lead and Congress should not have to tell us what we should be doing. And often uh, two years, uh, too little, too late. One of my favorite quotes is by Peter Drucker, which is culture eats strategy for breakfast. And what is the relationship from your perspective uh, between leadership and culture and how does that affect the ability to be able to innovate and adopt new technologies? Well, good leaders are going to empower their teams to, to, to lead and delegate and empower them at the lowest level. And if we can do that, I can tell you we have a lot of um, great and small wolf fighters that will figure things out if we get out of the way. And that's really the the outcome we want. We want to we want to make we want to empower and give the right information and insights to the people that actually do the work, and are going to make those decisions. I believe that the right culture can really make the difference to achieve change. How do you approach leading an organization to adopt a major change? Well, you know, it's a, it's a big debate, right? I think there's no um, no simple answer. It's a case by case. You want to lead by example. I started by uh, showing the, the way and showing that we could put, you know, all these DevSecOps, innovation, AI, ML capabilities on jets and bombers, on legacy systems that are 60 years old in 45 days and then 12 days and then show, you know, show we can bake in security and accelerate the delivery of capabilities to the warfighter in production while uh, not, you know, putting us at risk in terms of uh, nuclear surety or airworthiness or, or, or cybersecurity risk. So um, I think it's all about leading by example and tangible wins and showing that, uh, no, it doesn't take five years. It doesn't take 10 years. It doesn't take um, any years. It takes a few weeks, a few months. You want to cut it, make it tangible enough. Uh, and you want to you uh, scale uh, organically, get, get people excited, show them that uh, they can be part of it. And uh, uh, of course, be accessible. I was doing, you know, ask me anything events with, you know, thousands of people joining and asking me questions live so I can, um, you know, be fully transparent 
uh, that's another issue with duty, right? They, they, they hate uh, that you go outside of the family and, 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 and effectively uh, be able to communicate uh, with industry and the rest of the world, allegedly because of operational security reasons, which is, I believe, very short-sighted if that's the level they think China and Russia are, are at right now. Uh, that's very underestimating what they can do. Uh, but, but really, I think the, the construct is all about making sure that no one is held accountable because if you cannot talk about it and you can go outside of the family to talk about it, then if, if people mess up and waste uh, billions of taxpayer money, no one will ever know and, and no one will uh, take any action about it. I'm speaking with Nicholas Salon, the Air Force's former chief software officer. Next, we'll talk about marrying your passion and your skills to really drive your career. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm speaking with Nicholas Chileon, the Air Force's former chief software officer. Nick, in the last segment, we talked a little bit about change. Times of crisis have historically been great opportunities for change. And I believe a crisis can also present all kinds of opportunities to really advance innovation. What has been the biggest challenges that have been faced with this crisis? And do you believe the advances of AI and cybersecurity threats can prevent challenges or maybe even opportunities for the future? I mean, look at Russia right now and what they're doing um, and uh, funding, you know, uh, you know, great efforts to actually cause some pretty big disruption. No, absolutely. I, I actually believe that if we fail at um, waking up right now and, and, and don't listen to the 750 pages reports that the government love to write and no one wants to read uh, about the fact that allegedly we have 10 years to figure this out, we don't. Um, time compounds in AI when you train models and you are able to continuously, continuously deliver these models in production and add more data to it. They get better and better and you just can't catch up. Right, so AI is going to make or break uh, the next worlds. Is going to be uh, uh, whoever leads in AI will be leading and dominate the world. There's zero doubt about it. We we've seen it countless times. You look at even as recently as um, what's going on in uh, dogfight with AI-enabled uh, pilots of jets fighting against you know on F-16 jets, uh, American uh, human pilots where the, the, the poor human had no chance in, in even remotely competing, uh, despite the fact that I would argue this is not even tremendously advanced AI. Yeah, uh, it's getting there, but it, it's just not, it's nothing compared to what we're gonna see 10 years from now. So clearly that should um, make people pause and reflect and wonder what should we invest in? Is you know fifth generation jet fighter really the foundation of the next battles when we know that uh, we're going to send you know pilots to potentially not have a fighting chance against some ai uh, enabled jet uh, is that the answer uh, where they can actually uh, not even have humans in the jet uh, does that change the battle right um and, and and what about cyber offense and defense and ai enabled uh cyber offense what if uh that AI capability can um, effectively get into networks uh, when the human brain cannot even comprehend how that happened, which is effectively what we see often in AI, where, where the AI is so far advanced that we can't tell you why it's capable of doing what it's capable of doing, but yet it is. 
And uh, that's a scary thing. And of course, ethics have a play, right? And I'm not saying we should dismiss ethics in AI, but right now in the Pentagon, we have uh, AI leaders that are uh, completely focused on making sure that the military does not get AI-capable weapons. Uh, instead, they love to focus on ethics and funding ethics research. Meanwhile, China, of course, uh, doesn't care about ethics. I'm not saying that's right, it's just a fact. And they are drastically investing in, in, in AI-enabled weapons and partnering with and mandating uh, their uh, companies in China to partner with them. And if we don't wake up now uh, and we don't take the time to explain to our U.S. companies the urgency and we, we stop overclassifying all this information so we have a chance to explain so they can proactively uh, want to participate and partner with us to tackle this challenge, I believe most U.S. companies, if they knew what I know, they would be very concerned and they would want to participate and engage right now, despite the fact that the U.S. DoD market might not be you know, uh, fast and exciting and the best business move, they would know that if they don't do it, our kids and grandkids have no fighting chance 15 to 20 years from now against China. So many uh, books or strategy books by, by famous generals uh, always uh, cite that you need to know your enemy and know how your enemy is preparing uh, for war. And if we take that, just that concept and just look at what China is doing to help prepare for the AI war, for that cyber war, which as you cited is, is the next generation of keeping this country safe. So, you know, they have tons, they just start training kids right out of, you know, in elementary school to focus and understand how to develop the capability and, and the foundation core, you know, uh, skill set to be able to learn AI, to be great data scientists. They have huge facilities that are just dedicated to that and not so much in the US. Do you think this is a national security foundational problem just right out of the get go in our education system? A hundred percent. And, you know, if I wasn't employed, I, there would be probably two markets that would be exciting to me right now. The, the space market that is completely booming and the education market that I've yet to see any kind of disruption where, you know, continuous learning should be the foundation teaching kids how to learn. You know, I, I don't have a degree. I created my first company. I was 15. Um, you know, I learned everything, you know, by doing. Um, and so I think continuous learning is going to be the foundation of, of success in the future. So we need to invest in that, invest in making sure that the curriculums that we see in school, which are despicable and honest and how people are even okay paying for uh, curriculums that are 10 to, to 15 years, sometimes behind um, with quite honestly teachers that are not doing a good job at all. Uh, often, you know, teachers that have failed in the IT world that end up teaching because they couldn't find anything better to do. And instead of having, you know, top talent go back and, and help these um, uh, future leaders, that's disappointing to see. Um, uh, when I look at some of the, the college, uh, co college curriculums, uh, I would argue it's, it's a complete waste of, of anyone's money to get in debt to uh, go through a, any kind of degree right now in IT. Um, and we're not doing a good job at all at, at proactively starting to invest in our people when it comes to AI, cybersecurity, and data science. And so you spawn on, not only we're competing against 1.5 billion people, so on paper, just based on numbers, we already lost. So if we want to outsmart them, we have to be smarter, leaner, uh, more aggressive. And, and so far, we're doing none of that. 
So you, you, you talk about the basic foundation, which I believe is one of the biggest cracks in our armor is actually that, that development of talent that will help feed all of this, both commercial requirements and our public service capabilities. Um, but, you know, we, we talked a little bit about culture and leadership, um, but, you know, it doesn't matter how great of a leader you are if you don't have good people, you know, uh, skilled talent. So, you know, what can we do to help fill these key roles in the Pentagon right now? How can we find the next Nick uh, to fulfill and, and, and to make this call to help our, our nation, you know, uh, improve our current situation? Well, you know, first of all, I think we need to make sure we don't lose the Knicks uh, that we have, um, you know, and retain people. Um, we, we see all the bright uh, ones leaving. Um, I didn't leave because I, I was trying to do something else. I was I left because I was uh, getting frustrated um, and get, getting still in behind. And I felt like, yes, I brought tremendous value and, and we, we achieved tremendous success, but it, it was just anecdotal and not enough to impact change. And because I was not able to um, communicate that that urgency publicly, I felt like I had no choice but to to do that. Um, we should probably not uh, wait for us to get there. Uh, and in terms of attracting new talent, it's going to be very difficult, right? Because when you see things like what's happening in Afghanistan with no one held accountable, uh, I, I don't know who is going to be willing to go and serve. Honestly, I'm very concerned about this, right? Uh, on the military side, uh, particularly, of course, civilians, of course, um, we need to attract the best talent. We don't have the pay. You know, I was, I took a drastic pay cut, obviously. I lost a lot of money in terms of, of divest, divesting stocks and different things, uh, including after being in a job when they call me and say, hey, you know what, you have to sell your Amazon and Azure and, uh, and Microsoft stock despite approving it at, at first uh, in 24 hours, right? And, and so, you know, we see stuff like that happening that effectively would, would make most people not even want to spend a day in the building, uh, not to mention the building uh, being completely disconnected from, from any kind of modern technology. Um, so, so the entire model is broken, right? We can attract talent, we can retain them. Uh, the pay gaps is tremendous. But even if you forget about pay, because I, I do believe many people would want to serve despite of the pay, there's no progression of title, there's no empowerment, um, there's uh, so many silos. You feel like, you know, uh, I'm fixing, uh, you know, this thing, but, uh, oh, that's just for a tiny piece of a tiny subset of a tiny piece of the Air Force. Uh, and then, of course, Army and, and Navy are doing different things. Um, that This is not a model that's going to let us uh, succeed. I'm very concerned when I hear leaders at this, uh, not General Skinner, who is an amazing new leader, but others say, you know, hey, you know, enterprise services in DoD are bound to fail. It's too big. We're not even going to try. And so meaning, well, we're going to waste taxpayer money and let everybody do things in vacuums and silos, compounding problem, because now we have to try to connect all this stuff magically where we all know it's never going to happen uh, and it's never going to work out, particularly when you look at cybersecurity and zero trust and different things. So there is so many... Um, impediments to uh, getting people excited because if you feel like you're going to join and to make a difference but you you realize wait a minute i'm only making a tiny bit incremental change here and the rest of DoD is still gonna uh, do business the wrong way uh, that's not very, and a very exciting value proposition for people to put their lives on pause stop all everything they were doing um you know put obviously 
um, some of the, the work and the innovation work they were doing um, on pause and, and potentially get stale and behind because all they're going to be uh, focusing on will be basic cloud and basic, uh, you know, um, device capabilities and, and connectivity where the rest of the world is, is so far away from that already. So Nick, I can hear, I can feel your passion, but you kind of, you, you drop the mic and, and announce your departure in a rather unorthodox or, or non-traditional way uh, as far as uh, the, the inside the beltway. What, what made you drop the mic in such a bold way? You know, it's funny because when I, when I published my, my, my publication, I actually thought I went pretty soft. Uh, so, so um, you know, uh, that tells you uh, a lot. Um, and that's the problem, right? The, 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 the system is designed uh, not to do that. Allegedly, again, because of operational security, OPSEC, uh, allegedly, you know, the, our uh, enemies shouldn't know this stuff. They know, right? They don't need me to say this for them to know. Uh, that's completely foolish, okay? There's nothing classified about what I said. Uh, we were very careful. Um, the real uh, fact is that people don't want to be held accountable. Uh, they want to they wanna get a cushy job after leaving the government inside of the defense industrial base, um, which leads to tremendous conflict of interest, both within the building and outside of the building. And it's just the wrong way of doing business it's it's as a taxpayer it's despicable uh it's things that i would never understand i would never go back and sell stuff to duty i i i despise the idea of it uh i would not do that um i, I think people should not do that there's other markets uh if if you're competent and you're capable uh you can do other things uh, in life than uh than DoD. if you if you still want to serve that's okay just don't go back and sell stuff that you were not capable of doing in your job when you were in the in the role, uh, that's just not acceptable. So you know, I, I really think I, I was actually uh, pretty soft. Um, but but you're you're correct by saying that it's not common. To, but that's part of the problem. No one is held accountable. Uh, meanwhile, you know, people are getting more and more frustrated. We are um, losing uh, every on every uh, field our advantage slowly but surely, getting behind. Um, never ever do you hear, hey, we, we're accelerating compared to China. We, we just, you know, they're just catching up. That is just not acceptable, right? That, that alone, the fact that no one is held accountable for missing again and again critical technology advantages and innovations because we, we can't be proactive enough to see uh, what's right in front of us across all the commercial industry uh, that should not be tolerated, and, and people should wake up and, and hold people accountable. You're listening to Leaders in Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm speaking with Nicholas Shalon, the Air Force's former Chief Software Officer. Next, we'll find out what's Nick's advice to the next generation of leaders. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm speaking with Nick Shalon, the Air Force's former Chief Software Officer. Um, Nick, let's take a step back. Earlier, I asked you about why you dropped the mic, and there's been some pretty um, strong headlines that saying that we've lost the war 
on AI with China. And, you know, as we're speaking here, and I know you and I are both, um, you know, uh, very dedicated to help keep this nation safe and, and very grateful to the people in the Pentagon and the military services that help keep our country safe. Um, uh, tell me, do you do you think we lost it? Or, or, you know, we've been talking about different things that you could do. To, what, what do you think about that headline? Yeah, of course, as you know, <clears throat> this was a clickbait uh, title. Uh, I never said that. I, what I said was, uh, hey, we need to wake up right now. And if we don't, we have no fighting chance uh, you know, from winning that war. And as it stands, with the current plan we have, and including if we manage to successfully implement the AI plan we have, it is not good enough to win it. So really what I meant to say, or what I said, not what I meant to say, but what I said was, we need to wake up, we need to do it now. We don't have the luxury of time. We don't have another 10 to 15 years to figure this out. Um, we can't listen to these reports that keep uh, removing the sense of urgency of acting now. I'm tired of seeing government reports that say, oh, you have until 2027, 2030, whatever date they keep coming up with. Uh, we don't have the luxury of time. Time is now and we have to wake up. And if we don't, we will lose the world. That's what I said. Nick, I, I, I think you should run for Congress. <laughs> What's next? I can't. I can't. I need to wait another two years um, to uh, apparently when you're a naturalized U.S. citizens, I guess you're not a full citizen enough to run for Congress until you have uh, uh, seven years of, uh, of citizenship. So uh, we're gonna, you're going to have to wait another couple of years. OK, uh, and then then we can talk. Okay. Well, it, you, it seems that you really married your passion with your capabilities. Do you think that has contributed to your success? Yeah. I mean, look, when you when I do things, I'm all in, and I'm I, you know I hope people see that I, I'm really trying to uh, make a difference. This is not my best interest of doing any of this. Um, this ended up costing me a lot of money and relationships. And I, I'm okay with it because honestly, right now, when I, you know, when I started the job, I had no kids and I have three kids under three, I had twins. So <laughs> that was interesting. And, and so that really woke me up even more, right? That you have a, a more tangible sense of urgency. I, I know for a fact that uh, uh, my kids and, and our kids will have no fighting chance against China as it stands. So we, you know, we really need to take action. I love to make sure we can spread the message to uh, all these uh, commercial companies so they can come and help us to make this happen. Because I think if they realize how bad this is, uh, they will want to take action. They, most, most Americans uh, would do the right thing and, and we have to do it right. And we have to pay attention to privacy and ethics and everything. We will not compromise our way of life and the, the, what is America by taking action, right? We, we, but at the same time, if we lose the world, there will not be an America that we know. So, so people need to understand that too, right? And I'm not saying we have to compromise our values, but we have to take action. Well, the, again, looking at the way, uh, you know, the competition in this case, uh, uh, both Russia and um, China, uh, they look at companies different, right? Uh, China actually has complete access to whatever a company in China is doing. And in the U.S., it's very separated. Um, you know, do you think people understand that? Well, I think people understand it, right? But but that's also scary, right? Because people then will start thinking that I mean that you know we should uh, maybe start implementing this kind of stuff. And I don't agree with that. I'm not saying you know we should become 
uh, communist, right? And so, um, you know, there is a balance, though, between overclassifying information so people don't even know the problem and can be part of the solution and going and, and mandate and steal data and, and force companies to work with a with the government, right, uh, against their will. I believe people will do it willingly and proactively if they know what I know. That's the difference. The issue is we can't talk about what I know because it's classified. So we need to find a way to share enough so people will wake up. Uh, and we need also to stop these government reports funded by the government to tell us that, hey, we have time, w you know, it's near peer adversary when it's not, right? It is not a near peer, it's a peer and we need to wake up and it's just a, such a good excuse to make sure no one is, is effectively held accountable for not taking actions during the last 10 years and, and moving forward. Now, you, you have a ton of passion. So if I was to go back to 22-year-old Nick or, or you know, 30 plus years ago, what, what do you think that he would have said? Would he have guessed that you would be doing what you're doing now? <laughs> probably, I mean, I, the chance of a French guy being in, a, in the Pentagon is probably uh, pretty slim. Uh, so I don't know, but, but at the same time, you know, I, I, I am the exception and, and I, I don't, I don't let this kind of way of thinking get in the way of what I can do or cannot do. And I, I, I that's the American, American dream, honestly, uh, I embrace it. You know, when people tell you, you can't do it, just prove them wrong. You know, every time people tell me, oh, you can bring zero trust to DOD and you can't do this and that I prove them wrong again and again. And that's what you want to do. What will you hope to do next? I still want to make sure I, 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 I help, um, you know, fix this problem. I, I am not going to, what I'm not going to do, I can tell you is, is go back and sell stuff to duty. That's not going to happen. Um, I'm very excited about space. I'm very excited about education. Um, I'm going to help, you know, companies to, uh, to make sure that they understand why they should, you know, do more with DOD, help uh, get their capabilities into the department. Um, removing that uh, nightmare of accreditation and uh, assessment process that takes way too long, right? We, we compound problems, right? All these bureaucracy and what's supposed to protect us ends up putting us at risk. I can tell you there's going to be nothing worse one day for the Pentagon leaders to wake up and realize that no one is trying to hack us because we're, we are irrelevant, um, and that the, the attention will be towards the uh, companies on the US side instead. And we already see it. With other SpaceX, we will be using Russian capabilities to send you know, Americans to the ISS. It's disgraceful. How, who is okay with that? If uh, there was a listener out there, Nick, that would like to follow in your footsteps, or if you were to give some advice to your kids 20 years from now, what would it be? Uh, believe in yourself. Don't listen to people with, that tell you you can't do something. Uh, it's usually usually a pretty good sign that uh, you're onto something. Um, if 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 you listen to others that keep telling you not to do something, you you're just wasting your time. You're with the wrong people. Uh, just do it. Believe in yourself. Work hard. Um, make things happen. Um, and you know, uh, don't think about money. Uh, money comes when you do the right things anyway. Um, and you know, think. A bigger picture, think outside the box, uh, and believe in yourself. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Nick Chileon. Nick, I, I just want to thank you for joining us today. I've really enjoyed our conversation and sharing your personal journey and some super important uh, advice and information. 
Uh, thanks for having me. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Thank you.